You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. Well, welcome to Palm Vista Community Church. As we continue our series in the book of Isaiah, we've entitled the series Living in the Shadow of the Great King. Living in the Shadow of the Great King. And this morning's message is called, Who's in Charge Here? Who's in Charge Here? And it's from Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 14, verse 27. Isaiah 13, 1 through 14, 27. Who's in charge here is the title of the message this morning on the screen there. And uh, so when my kids were younger, uh, they used to uh, argue in the backyard. Maybe with some of your kids. (laughs) And I remember what they used to hear. One child would say to another, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. And I would chuckle and I would say, yes, that's very perceptive. At times, right, we can be found saying to our Heavenly Father, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Uh, Perhaps a more adult uh, illustration of this would be when my seminary professor, uh, Dr. Richard Pratt, Uh, was teaching us Hebrew back in the early 90s, he would say this, much of scripture, in much of scripture, you want to answer the question of who's in charge. And this is how he would say this, who's zooming whom? Who is zooming whom? In other words, who's in charge, right? And uh, the answer is God is in charge. God is the one who's doing the Zooming. I'm glad that he Zoomed that title up for us to see. Who's in charge here? And uh, this is a very important question, church. So let me ask you a question. Who's in charge? Are you in charge? I'm not asking you whether you want to be in charge. Okay, we all know the answer is yes, right? Because all of us are the kid in the backyard saying, you're not the boss of me, right? Because whoever's in charge They get to do their agenda, right? Political party gets voted into office. That agenda is what's being done. Now, I'm asking you, are you in charge? I'm convinced of this. Much of the anxiety and nervous breakdowns that many people have is really, it's a pride breakdown because we so desperately want to be in charge. And some of us are good at it, right? We get it all together. And then we forgot where we put it. Or everything is working and then one thing goes boom. And that's why God gives us children. (laughs) Because if you think you're in charge, wait till God gives you a child. (laughs) Or two, or three, or four. After two, forget about it, right? But then we lose our minds because we're not in charge, right? Not in charge. Um, Is your boss in charge? Is the ruler of this nation in charge? You know, I mean, who's in charge? Right? Is it some crazy dictator in some far off land whose finger is poised over the nuclear button? It can be tempting, can't it be? It was tempting for Israel back then. Remember, when was this written? Probably about 700 to maybe 740 to 700 BC, 
is when Isaiah ministered and he wrote it to a nation that was surrounded by foreign nations that were very powerful, that were beginning to encroach upon them and they were threatening that nation. And so the question is, who's in charge? Actually, the question that dominates the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is, can I trust God? Is he in charge? Will his agenda be done? Will his promise to preserve us as a nation and through us bring a savior, will that promise occur when it looks like we're going to be squashed like bugs by these powerful nations around us? You could be asking that question. Will God's purposes for my life come to fruition? Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? And so Israel, unfortunately, was not buying that God's in charge. They were doing what so many of us do. They thought they were in charge, so they started negotiating with some of these foreign nations. King Ahaz talked about this last week. And sadly, because they refused to trust God, because they didn't really believe he was in charge, but they thought these other nations were in charge or they were in charge, they went down a pathway that led to God's purifying judgment. Because God, God's in charge. And God does not negotiate that point. He is the boss of us. And so he is going to do what he promises to do, but he's going to do it in a way that is holy and right with a remnant, with a people that are holy and right. And so God is speaking to his nation in the 700s BC. And he's continuing to appeal to them and say, I am in charge. So to to communicate that, that doctrine, the sovereignty of God, that he's in charge, that his will will be done, he issues forth now in the next, oh, I don't know, 10 to 12 chapters, from chapter 13, probably a little past chapter 23, he issues several oracles, These are prophetic oracles. Think of an oracle as just as a judgment, as a prophecy. He issues several of these oracles, and these oracles are oracles of judgment on the nations. And what God's point is here in issuing forth these oracles is, I am in charge, and I'm going to prove that to you by telling you what I'm going to do to these nations over the span of hundreds of years. So remember, Isaiah is a prophet God is sharing with Isaiah what's going to happen to these nations. Some of these nations, like Assyria, we're going to read a little bit about the judgment against Assyria, would be judged in maybe 50, 60, 70 years. Some of them, like Babylon, we're going to read about the judgment against Babylon, they'll be judged 200 years later. Babylon won't become a superpower for another 200 years from the time that Isaiah writes this. But God is able to tell Isaiah what's going to happen because he's God. And he knows what's going to happen. And he's telling them about these judgments so that they would trust him. He's saying, you're going to trust this nation? Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do to that nation in about 50 or 60 years. I mean, imagine if right now you could know what's going to happen to China in 65 years. Or Russia in 150 years. Or 250 years. Whatever nation right now is on our radar as strong nations that perhaps could threaten us. What if you could know exactly what's going to happen to them? Who can know that? God, not you. That's his point. We can worry about it. 
The pundits can talk about it till the cows come home to roost. Cows come home to roost? Cows don't roost. Thank you. The pundits can give you all of their punditry. And where does that lead you? Remember what happened about two years ago? All the pundits said one thing, and something else happened, right? But God knows what's going to happen. And you can trust God. You can trust them for what's going to happen to China and Russia in 200 years, or America in 150 years, and what's going to happen in your life. He loves you, and he knows you. That's the point here. You got the point? All right, are we read in? One more point before we actually read the text. Because these are hard texts, aren't they? I mean, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to be reading stuff here today. You're like, what in the world is going on here? You know, just like that. And, but it's important stuff. Let me tell you why it's so important. Listen to me carefully, you who are suffering right now and wondering what's going to happen to you and your loved ones. This is the scripture that the church used in the first century to preach the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God to help people that are trembling because they don't know what's going to happen. You understand that? You understand in the first century, they didn't have the New Testament yet. It was being written. So when a preacher wanted to preach to the church in Rome in 65 AD, facing persecution from a Roman Caesar, far worse than anything we would ever know, who's killing Christians, and he's preaching the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and he's saying, trust God. You know where he's preaching it from? Isaiah 13 and 14. So we better be able to preach it today from there. Now, we have the benefit of also having Romans 8, right? All things work together for good. Praise God for that. But oh, let's preach it from Isaiah because we got brothers and sisters leaning over the balcony of heaven right now watching us and saying, preach it, brother. And you need to be saying, yes, preach it, brother. Because God has your life in his hands and he knows what's going to happen to you and to your children and even your grandchildren. He knows whether that new invention is going to really work. He knows what, how, how everything's going to happen if you're going to be able to pay your bills next week, next month. He knows it. And he, he has you, okay? All right, so let's read about it. You ready? I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read to you select portions of this because it's a lot. It's two chapters, but it's rich. Read it this afternoon. It'll, it'll thrill you. It may confuse you a little bit. It'll thrill you. All right, here we go. Isaiah 13, one, you there? Please be, go there. This is God's word. Read it silently as I read it out loud. Verse one, the oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 17 of Isaiah 13. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes. The Medes are the Medo-Persian Empire, kind of modern-day Iran, that God's going to use to judge the Babylonian Empire. Think modern-day Iraq. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them, the them is Babylon, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. But it will never be inhabited, but speaking of Babylon, or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. 
And he's going to so devastate Babylon that even the, the temples, imagine the White House being a burned out shell of nothing and dogs and wild animals are walking through it. That's how thorough will God's judgment be on Babylon. Verse 22 of chapter 13. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Now skip down to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, verse 22. Isaiah 14, 22. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction. That's pretty thorough. Sweeping it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Now he's going to shift in verse 25 of chapter 14 to Assyria. Assyria was the modern day superpower of Isaiah's time. Babylon would be a superpower in 200 years. Assyria was the modern day superpower. Listen to what he says about Assyria. That I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, the hand of God. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? God reveals to the church then, to the church in the first century, and to the church today. He reveals to you and me that he is in charge, that he rules the nations in judgment, and he will accomplish his purpose. That's the main point on the screen. God rules the nations in judgment, accomplishing his purpose. God rules the nations in judgment. See, The person who rules is the person who judges. You drive by me at 92 miles an hour on I-75. I may say a few choice words to you, especially if you drive too close to me and it scares me. Uh, I may try to chase you down and take your picture and send it to somebody. But I can't do anything about that because I'm not in charge. You drive by one of my friends that has coffee with me at Casavana who drives one of those cars that says Florida Highway Patrol, and guess what's happening to you? The judge will speak to you in court, right? So God rules the nations, how? Through judgment. We all answer to God to accomplish his purpose. Point one, God rules the nations in judgment. What is astonishingly clear in these passages, and what I want you to read this afternoon later on, is that God judges the nations using the nations to judge the nations. He uses the very wickedness of wicked man to judge the nations and, by the way, to purify his people with judgment because God rules. He's in charge. Listen, as Richard Pratt, my professor at RTS, would say, who's zooming who? God's zooming the nations. God's doing the zooming. And the nations that appear so powerful before you, Israel, they're the zoomies. Zoomer, zoomies. It's God who's in charge. It's amazing. Look at it with me. I want you to look at at chapter 13, verse 3. You there? I myself, 
this is God speaking, have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. Who are these people? These are the wicked nations. God is not validating their wickedness, but God is saying, I'm going to use them as my mighty men, as my consecrated ones, consecrated to God's purposes, even though they're not holy at all. My proudly exalting ones. Look at chapter 13, verse 4b and 5. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land from the end of the heavens and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the land. What God is saying here is that God will rule the nations by using the nations to destroy the nations who have rebelled against him and purify his people who refuse to trust in him. And God controls how far they can go and who gets destroyed and what wars take place and what wars don't take place. What's the application? Today, when you hear of wars and rumors of war, trust in God who rules the nations and in judgment, using them to accomplish his will. This will give you peace when you get your daily news feed on your phone or when you sit down tonight to watch whatever is going to be breaking news on whatever place on the planet that things happen. It is hard to understand it. I understand that. But God is orchestrating it all. He's good. He does not sin. He uses the wicked to do his righteous will. I do not claim to understand it, but I'll tell you what it does. It gives me peace and rest that God's in control. Even though at times it may affect me tremendously and I may suffer, but I know there is a day that we sang about that all creation is waiting for when all accounts will be settled and God will close history and his glory will be done and will be in the new heavens and new earth and in Christ we're there. Now these two oracles that we read just now between uh, Babylon and Assyria are there because God wants to get the attention of Israel. First, Assyria is currently threatening them in 740 to 700 BC. Actually, in 722 BC, Assyria will totally wipe out the 10 northern tribes. Just wipe them out. Judah, those two tribes in the south, will still be there trembling. Okay, In two weeks, uh, Kyle's going to be preaching about uh, a situation that happens there with Hezekiah. But he's going to just, 722 is going to wipe out the whole 10 northern tribes. And Babylon, why Babylon? Because Babylon is the poster child For human glory, pride, self-sufficiency, trusting in one's riches. They are like the gold standard of culture, sophistication, education, riches, and human accomplishment. If you read your Bible, you'll find Babylon mentioned quite a bit, even in Revelation, because they represent something. Granted, in Isaiah's time, it would be two centuries until 586 BC that Babylon would be used by God to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple and take God's people off into exile into Babylon, modern day Iraq. It'll be, it'll be another couple of years, 70 or so years before God then returns the people back to uh, the promised land from Babylon. But Babylon represents something. Babylon represents the power of man in his arrogance and pomp. Look at me with a couple of uh, verses here. Go down to um, chapter 14. And uh, 
and look at verse 4. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. See, Babylon was, represents the oppression of man and wicked kings and rulers against people in general and specifically against God's people. Do you come from a nation that has experienced oppression? Talk to a Venezuelan today who left everything and ask him how he feels or she feels about what's happening in that country. Talk to a Cuban, it's my people's, Ask him how it feels to lose everything, to include the lives of those you love because of oppression. That's, the, that's what he's talking about here, that God will break the scepter of the evil and the wicked. Those who rule in pomp. Go back to chapter 13, verse 11. Chapter 13, verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Growing up, I, I, always, I always had this, I don't know, this sensitivity to justice and justice issues. I had to watch it because I'd get so mad when I saw injustice. You know, the, you know that movie where you had the pompous pride of the ruthless oppressing the weak? I just like would j- want to jump through the screen and just take the guy out. You know what I'm saying? Um, But then as the Lord saved me, I realized, well, I'm not God. That's not my call. That's God's call. But it's so helpful for us to know this. God will settle accounts with that pompous, proud person who terrorizes and victimizes and abuses other people. And it's important that we understand that. Because if we don't, then our temptation is not to trust God, but to trust ourselves. That's called vigilantism. That's called, you know, vengeance is mine, says Alpino. You try that on the palmetto and someone will pull a gun on you, right? That's small, that's small potatoes, but big potatoes, that's called bitterness. That's called arrogance. And God is saying, no, trust me. I'll take care of the ruthless. You trust me. And secondly, it's important that we embrace this doctrine of God's sovereignty and judgment of the wicked so that we can rest in him. Because see, church, we understand in Christ that I'm the pompous, ruthless one. Because I've sinned against God in arrogance apart from Christ. And I've oppressed. I may not be a dictator of a major nation and and visiting so much harm on people, but that's only because no one's voted me in and I don't live in that nation. I've often joked with people when God called me into the ministry, I was on my way to being an attorney and and, and a politician in South Florida. And, and I remember thinking, I was so arrogant. Like, power was my deal. Not so much money, power. You know, I either wanted to be a politician, you know, like in America, or, you know, a dictator of some banana republic in the Caribbean somewhere. You know what I mean? Just, just put me in charge, man. And, and here's, the, here's, the doctrine, here's the doctrine of total depravity, church. Here's, here's the doctrine. Evil, you are evil apart from Christ. You're not as evil as you can be, and thank God for that. But all of us, because of sin, have it in us to be that evil. 
So when I'm watching it on TV, rather than arrogantly and self-righteously saying, oh, I, I humbly say, God, thank you that you saved me from that. And I pray for God's mercy on those people. And at the same time, don't miss this one. I pray for God's judgment on that evil person. Can you hold all those together? Those are hard, right? Because we tend to polarize. The real merciful person is like, oh, just mercy, mercy, mercy. Or the vigilante, like, mow them all down. And somewhere in the middle is you got to have justice. If you've ever been oppressed, if you've ever been hurting, you want justice and you need justice. But at the same time, we have mercy because we realize we deserve judgment. And instead of us being judged, Christ was judged on the cross. So when the early church was preaching this, they were preaching this to people who were being literally crucified because they were Christians. And they were preaching for God's judgment to come on Rome. By the way, Rome was seen as a Babylon. If you read Revelation, you can read that. And they were, they were praying for deliverance, but at the same time, they were being merciful to those who were persecuting them, right? It's complicated as a Christian. It's not either or. It's not one political party. It's not one way of thinking. It's the kingdom of God. Do you get that? God's in charge. So I don't like this right now, Lord, and I can tell you I don't like it, but I bow my knee to you and I trust you because I believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine that God rules and that he will judge the wicked. It's important for us to believe this doctrine right here from Isaiah 13 and 14. So I think that's the application here on this first point. Let's move to point two. Point two. God accomplishes his purpose. God accomplishes his purpose. How, does, how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, look again at Isaiah 14, 24. Isaiah 14, 24. And Stephen, I'm sorry, I think it was on the slide, the two slides before point two. Isaiah 14, 24 on the screen says the following. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. This is what sets God apart from everybody else, right? You've heard the joke, you want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans, right? Did I get that right? Maybe not. It's close enough. All right, uh, right? If you've ever been in the military, you know you make a military plan, and as soon as the bullets start flying, Everything's going to change. You have a business plan. You think you got this perfect business plan. You launch it and then boom. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to plan your kid's day and then boom, they wake up. There goes your plan. <laughs> and you're going to plan your career. You're going to plan who you're going to marry. You, you, got, you got where I'm going, right? Okay. So, but ex- that's true of all of us except for God. God. So therefore, what he's saying is, I'm judging Assyria because no one can come against my plans. Assyria says, I will kill you, Judah. Two weeks from now, this is a a trailer for that sermon. I will wipe you out, Judah. And God's saying, and go now to the next slide, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Not Assyria, because I'm going to judge them. His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. No one. No one. 
So, so point two, God accomplishes his purpose. And what is God's purpose? God's purpose for Israel, remember 740 BC. I know we're going back and forth, your head's spinning, but hang in there with me. It's worth it, okay? This is God's story. Follow the storyline. 740 BC to 700 BC, he's prophesying these oracles that are going to happen 25, 30, 50, 200 years down the road. His point is, I'm in charge. I will judge the nations. Why? To accomplish my purpose. I will even use the nations to judge each other to accomplish my purpose. I will even use Babylon to purify my people in judgment in 586 BC by destroying Jerusalem. But, but, Look at verse 1 on the screen of Isaiah 14. In the midst of this oracle is what he tells his people. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Jacob's another word for Israel, Judah, God's people. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So he's talking about something that's going to happen somewhere around 520 BC. He's prophesying in 740 to 700 BC of Babylon that will, God will use to judge his people. His people will go into exile. But then he tells them, I will bring you back from exile to this land. Because my purpose is to bring forth a savior, a redeeming king who will bless the nations. So he's saying, I'm going to purify Israel with this judgment that I'm going to use Babylon to execute on them. They will be like a stump, like a tree that's been cut down, and then the stump has been burned over. But he's saying, I'm going to bring life from that stump. That life is Jesus Christ. So this was written in 700s BC, who will come 700 years later. And I will fulfill my purpose because I judge and rule the nations. You could trust me. You could trust me. Verse 3 on the screen. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. Now, at that time, he's talking to people who had been in exile and been under the slavery of Babylon, who had been this oppressive ruler and who had had them in chains. He says, I'm going to relieve that from you. I'm going to bring you back to the land, and I'm going to bless you. And here's the application. Babylon, slavery, oppression, those are all pictures of Satan and this world's system. So whatever chains or pain you're in right now, Whatever place where you're aware that you are not prospering, that there's turmoil in your life, that you're wondering, will God, will God accomplish his purpose for your life? Is God in charge? Who is in charge here? My life seems to be Spinning out of control. I I can't control anything. What's going on here? And so what he's saying here, what the early church would have preached from this in the first century after Christ, what we preach today is that God's in charge and he will bring life from the burned over stump of of all that you've experienced. He He will bring new life out of that because he did it in Christ. He fulfilled his promise incredibly and he's gonna 
going to keep fulfilling his promise till the day he returns and history is over. So that means his promise for you and your loved one and your children. Yes, you. Now, we don't, I don't, I don't know 100% what it is for you, all right? But I do know that he's going to make you like Christ when we see him. And I do know it's going to be glorious. And I do know there's no more pain. And I do know there's no more turmoil. And I do know there's no more hard service. And I do know that Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, representing the Babylonian system of captivity and representing all the evil ones that oppress God's people. And I do know he's going to set you free from the bondage of sin and pain. I do know one day your body's not going to be in pain anymore. And I do know one day you're not going to have any more longings because you're going to see Jesus as he is. And I do know you're going to have so much joy, you're not going to know what to do with it. And I do know that no man has imagined the glories God has for his people. And men have imagined some pretty glorious things, haven't they? There's some pretty cool places here on earth. That's nothing. That's playing in a mud puddle. And what God has for us is the most beautiful beach and the most beautiful island in the world or whatever it is that's beauty to you. The most beautiful mountains on the most beautiful ski range, whatever it is you like. God, I do know that for you in Christ. So therefore, I can say, like we sang this morning, though trouble's hard, it's only momentary. I'm not minimizing your pain. I'm not. I'm not. But I'm giving you hope, just like all the saints and preachers have been doing to God's people for the last hundreds and thousands of years. I'm just preaching to you God's word that's true, because God's in charge. You're not in charge. I'm not in charge. God's in charge. So what's the appeal here? I think two things. And let me just read to you this one quote. I'm going to quote myself. How's that? (laughs) Because God rules over the nations and controls their fate, it is foolish to trust the nations rather than trusting in God. If you trust the nations, you will end up in a desert The description of Babylon. It was a desert. Not even the Bedouins would live there. But if you trust in God, the God who rules the nations in judgment, the God who always accomplishes his purposes to restore his people, then you will end up in a garden. The garden. So what does it look like to trust the nations versus trusting God? I'm not sure that I can detail that out for you. Hopefully this week in your small groups or when you talk about this with your friends or whomever, you can talk about this. But the word rest jumped out at me. See that word says there, I will give you rest. So here's my question. Where do you go for rest? I don't know. Some people go to a bottle. Some people go to herbs. Some people go to movies, relationships. Some people go to making a ton of money. Some people go to violence. Some people go to just yelling at each other. I don't know. Um, And there are some legitimate places of rest that God gives us. But if ultimately you go to anywhere or to anyone other than God for rest, you're going to end up in a desert. Okay? So I'm not sure what that looks like for you. Let's tease that out this week. Let's ask each other. I don't want to trust the nations. I want to trust you, God. So what does it look like for you to trust the nations versus trusting God? I think that's the big question, the big takeaway. And, uh, and secondly, I'm going to bring this sermon in for a landing here. Um, I think God's calling us to work together 
to see the nations come and worship God. You're going to hear about that next week. I believe God's will is that he redeem his people and he perfect our worship together. And our worship is not only what we sing to him and what we say to him, but what we do together during the week. He's perfecting our worship so that then together we can reflect God and reflect Christ to the world that's watching us and we can call them to come and worship God. And God will call out from every nation, from every land, from every people, everywhere, all over this world. God has his people waiting for the day that he opens their eyes and he's going to use us and our words and our preaching and our giving. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have some some folks go to foreign lands in a couple of months. And we're going to go because we believe this gospel. God has called us to be a blessing to the nations in Christ. And so I want to do that. I want to bless him to conclude this service because that is God's purpose, that we might worship God. In Christ, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. We sang that this morning. That Christ should be the head of all, his purpose to fulfill. Let's pray. Worship team, please join me in the front. Father, I pray that you would speak to every heart that is assembled here today. Lord, we're not done yet. This is a time now to put into practice what we've just heard. I can just imagine the church in Rome meeting in the catacombs, hearing a sermon from Isaiah 13, 14. Lord, it fires me up. I was in those catacombs just a couple of years ago in Rome. And just imagine my predecessor, some preacher. Maybe we look a little bit alike. I don't know. He was certainly not speaking English. But he was speaking your language, your word, and he was, he was preaching to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were suffering. And he was saying, trust God, for God judges the nations to include this evil Roman Empire that is crucifying our, our friends and family and imprisoning us and feeding us to the lions. He's saying, trust God, for his purposes will be completed in you, little church, shivering in a catacomb underneath Rome. Oh, Lord, I pray if there are those wondering, can anything good come out of my life? This burned over stump. God, what are you doing with me? What are you doing with our church? Father, we want to say we trust you. We trust you. Because you have judged sin on the cross in Christ. My sin. And you have defeated Satan and made a show of him openly and all his minions on the cross. And you have defeated sin and death. And, and in the resurrection, you, you defeated death and, you're, and, you're, and you are alive. Lord, give us the grace to call the nations to come praise and glorify you, the ruling king of all the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings.